Heavenly Father, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to hear Peter's proclamation today as those heard it so many years ago. That we would not only believe, Lord, but we would trust that Jesus Christ reigns upon the throne from heaven. That he has given his life, that he has shed his blood so that sinners like us can overcome the battle that rages in our own hearts against you. We ask, Lord, that you would make this truth known to us so that we can live today and every day as faithful followers, wanting and desiring to know thy will and then do it. Father, we praise you for the resurrection and ascension of our Lord and Savior. We praise you for seating him upon the throne and giving him all power in heaven and on earth. And because of that, Father, we as sinners saved by grace can gather here this morning with great hope of being restored, experiencing the refreshing that comes through your Spirit, and then walking in holiness as you've created us to Father, I pray that you would bless us this morning, cause our hearts to submit to you fully, take away all tension, all war, all the battles that continue to rage in our hearts and minds. Instead, Lord, cause us to submit to Christ that we might live. I praise you for this word and the opportunity to faithfully preach it. I ask, Lord, that you would help me to that end. I pray as well for my brothers and sisters and those you've gathered here today that we would receive this as your word, not a word of man, but your word, and be rightly changed by it. Father, give us the strength this morning by your Spirit to be utterly transformed that we might live as you have called us to live. We thank you for the blessing of this opportunity, Father, and for this morning, this day that belongs to you. I ask, Lord, that as a church we would faithfully exercise this wonderful means of grace in worship. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. How are you this morning? Are you well? Good. You're not tired of Acts, are you? If you are, you're in trouble. We got a long way to go. We got a long way to go. Uh, I don't know how you can be. I mean, it's just a, uh, it's a bit of a roller coaster ride, and that's a good thing. Um, we want to see the battles taking place, and we want to see Christ victorious in each battle. The title of the sermon is The Power of Christ, um, and, and I think it's fitting because the focus is going to be on the ascension of Christ, Him being seated upon the throne, and how we respond to Him. Now, I don't know about you, but most of us, most of us growing up, I think at some point in time in our lives struggled with those who had legitimate authority over us. Our parents, our teachers, our coaches, even the most obedient of you, of which I was not one, the most obedient of you still at times struggled submitting to those who were over you. At least you did in your heart, even if you grumbled as you did what you were told. In third grade, immediately following an assembly given by the principal, telling students not to throw rocks. I went out, I grabbed a dirt clod, and I threw it at a sixth grader, hitting him square in the back. 
Yeah, he wasn't hurt, by God's grace. Uh, it was an action that promptly landed me in the principal's office. So we had a one-on-one dialogue. And my mother was there, my poor mother, and all she could do was shake her head at her son's rebellious heart. What answer do you give other than the boy is a sinner? Pray for him. (laughs) This morning in our story in Acts, we're going to see the Jewish elite struggle with the exact same thing. Although not with the principle in throwing rocks, it's struggling in their hearts to submit to the one true living God. And then we'll have Peter respond to them. And it's my prayer this morning that we will hear Peter's response. We will examine our own hearts and how we still are in rebellion against God. And we will experience the refreshing power that comes in the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I want to be set free from all battles with God in my heart and mind. Those are futile battles. We will not win. And so we want to surrender and come under submission to Him. And so if there were a theme to this, it would be simple. Submit to Christ and live. Submit to Jesus Christ and live. I want to look at this passage in three ways. Number one, the power struggle. Number two, the power stone. And number three, the power displayed. The power struggle that's in the heart of every man. The power stone who is Christ, who enables us to be set free from that struggle, that we might build our lives on the cornerstone of Christ. And then the power displayed. How is that manifest in our lives? What does that look like? Will we live differently in light of the work of Christ in changing our hearts and minds? I believe so. So let's take a look at number one, the power struggle. If you remember, Peter and John are are preaching in Solomon's colonnade. They are in the presence of the beggar who had been healed. Literally thousands had gathered to hear this second sermon preached by Peter. And, and, And Luke tells us that in the middle of this sermon, he's interrupted. It literally says that that these men came upon him almost as though to capture them. The temple priest, the captain of the temple, he was he was second in command, um, second only to the high priest, actually. He was in charge of temple affairs. And then, of course, the Sadducees. And if you don't know who they are, they were one of three schools of thought, Jewish schools or Jewish sects. There were the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. And the Sadducees were by far the most secular of the three groups. Um, They only believed that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were actually God's Word. Uh, They rejected all the oral tradition of the Pharisees. They rejected angels, they rejected demons, they rejected immortality, they rejected the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe there was life after death. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's a, a bad religion. Um, it certainly was, was a poor reflection on their understanding of the Old Testament, even the Torah for that matter. But for our story, what you need to know is the Sadducees were supremely secular. They were, considered, they were concerned more about power and politics than they were about God's word or truth. They were so highly political that they wanted to ensure that their Roman captors were pleased in the ruling of the people. And so they were always seeking the status quo. They didn't want to upset Rome or bring any any type of disturbance to the peace. So look at verse 2. Luke tells us that they were, quote, greatly annoyed. You can translate that highly disturbed by the teachings of the apostles. And not so much the theology, what the apostles were teaching about Christ and God and salvation by grace through faith. They were concerned about what they were saying from a political standpoint. The latter part of verse 2 tells us that that John and Peter were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
Now, when we think about that, we think about ourselves being raised from the dead and then Christ coming again in glory. They understood it in Jesus' time as a general resurrection at the end of human history. And so, when they heard this, they knew that it was a teaching about the coming of the Messiah, that it was a a time when the foreign oppressors and their power would be suppressed by God and the Davidic kingdom would reign again. And so they're concerned that this teaching on the resurrection would cause a revolution. And they had already experienced many. The Maccabeans, probably the most famous in the two centuries prior. Certainly revolutionaries in the time of Christ and those leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. So when they talk about the resurrection of the dead or the new Moses, that Jesus is this seed of Abraham, in the Sadducees' eyes they're thinking, these guys are going to get us in trouble with Rome. They're preaching a message that's going to cause a disturbance in the peace, and we must stop that. Therefore, Peter and John must be silenced. Look at verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So the high court, the Sanhedrin, which was going to adjudicate this case as they did our Lord's, they had already adjourned for the day, so they decided to put Peter and John in jail. They're already way behind the ball, though. The Sanhedrin, they know they're in trouble. Look at verse 4. Many of those who heard the word from Peter and John in their preaching believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So an additional 2,000 added on to the 3,000 that came to a saving grace at Pentecost, not including all those God was saving day by day. There was a critical mass now in Jerusalem of Jesus' followers. The church was growing exponentially. And so simply putting Peter And John in jail, they knew that wasn't going to keep the status quo. They had a real issue amongst the people that they had to solve. So serious was this problem, we know by the next day of the who's who that gathered for this tribunal. The Sanhedrin consisted, look at verse 5. On the next day, their rulers, the rulers are the priests, and their elders, they were They were members of the Jewish elite, the upper class, the aristocracy. And the scribes, those would have been the Pharisees that were on this council. They gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the the high priest. He was actually the ex-high priest, but he had so much power and influence that his presence there meant a lot. And then Caiaphas, who was the reigning high priest, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Seventy-one members serving on this Sanhedrin. It was a, a judicial tribunal that heard affairs pertaining to the temple itself. Annas was there. Caiaphas was there. Now, this exact body, only weeks prior, had met, adjudicated, tried, and found guilty Jesus Christ. And so weeks later, they're now gathered here. Whatever whatever, um, they thought they accomplished in the killing of Jesus, they now realize was very short-lived. That time of peace or quiet from these Jesus followers was very short-lived because now they have Peter and John and the apostles and now over 5,000 believers teaching the same message, proclaiming the same gospel and the same person they had just killed. Not only were they, were people believing, but we're told that they were actually worshiping God. And so the Sanhedrin gathered the next day and they, they would meet in a semicircle and they would bring John and Peter in, and it literally says in verse 7, it set them in their midst. It literally means they put them in the middle. So imagine 71 philosophers, lawyers, scribes, religious leaders in a semicircle, and here's John, and here's Peter, and here's the lame man that had been healed. Everyone was present. 
And then the question is asked. And it is the question. It's the question of the hour. Look at the latter part of verse 7. They, the Sanhedrin, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, this is a loaded question. Now, they want to know, how did this guy get healed? We know this beggar. He was at the gate beautiful for years begging for alms. And now he walks, now he leaps, now he worships God. By what power did you heal him? But they also want to know, and I think even more so, they want to know by what power do you have to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come? How can you talk about the resurrection of the dead? How can you talk about a new Moses? How can you talk about the seed of Abraham being here, coming here? These are revolutionary terms. They did not like it. They did not want to hear about the resurrection of the dead because that would cause instability. That would, that would hit their pocketbook. That would cause their power to be de- decreased if Rome responded poorly. It's the right question. Right? I mean, these are the men who are in a position of power in, in, the, in the context of the temple. And so they asked the same question. They asked it to Jesus. Luke chapter 20 One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, same as Peter and John, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, same group, they came up to Jesus and they said, tell us by what authority do you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? So they want to know. They're responsible. They want to know where Jesus got the right to teach the kingdom of God had come and now they want to know where Peter and John think they got the right to teach the kingdom of God had come. It's a good answer. It's a good question. But the answer they're going to get, they're not going to like. They're not seeking truth, my beloved. They had already put Christ to death. They're not seeking truth. They're trying to retain power. They were trying to retain power. And in so doing, they must go against God. Most of you know that power, once claimed, is not easily given up. It's not easily given up even when the transfer of power is legitimate. I think our most recent experience here in Santa Clara County proved that point quite well. Santa Clara County went against the Supreme Court of the United States when it came to the church's ability to meet. The Supreme Court of the United States on February 5th of this past year ruled in favor of churches in Santa Clara County being able to meet. It was our constitutional prerogative. Santa Clara County officials argued, listen to this, that their rules for indoor gatherings were, quote, structured in a fundamentally different way than the state's rules. And they announced on February 6th, one day after the Supreme Court ruling, that indoor gatherings of all types for churches remained prohibited. They were not willing to see and submit to the authority of the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, this is not uncommon in human history. God has been at odd with states for centuries. And so it should not surprise us either in first century Jerusalem or in 21st century Santa Clara County, that these ruling bodies would work against God, God's people, and God's laws. But what these ruling bodies do reveal is the problem is much deeper, and that is in the heart of every human being, we rebel against God. The real battle for power is not with the Sanhedrin, it's not with Santa Clara County. The real battle is in the human heart. My beloved, wasn't this the the problem in the very beginning? Wasn't this the problem in the garden with Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve, instead of submitting to God, they wanted what? They wanted to be like God. They wanted to run their lives, live their lives as they saw fit, not in submission to their creator who was good and wanted to bless them eternally. 
And so when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes along, and it says very clearly in Matthew 28, 18, that all authority, listen, all authority in heaven and on earth, including the human heart, has been given to Jesus, you're going to have conflict. You're going to have conflict in the heart of every man because if Christ reigns and he has ultimate power, then if we rebel against him, we're rebelling against God. We all, like Adam and Eve, desire self-rule. We all do. Every time you sin, you're exercising that desire of self-rule. Every time that we sin, my beloved, we are engaging in a power struggle against the creator of the universe. Remember, God created us in his image to reflect his image, his love, his beauty, his majesty, his grace, his justice. But as a result of the fall, our hearts want to live another way. We want to live as we think best. But our best is not truly best. God knows what is best for us. He's given us the word of God and the Holy Spirit that we might live in accordance with his will. What is best for us and according to our hearts and minds is usually sinning against God. And so the primary struggle here and I would argue in our own hearts, is not truth. It's not trying to decide whether or not Jesus Christ is Lord, that he did die, that he did rise, that he does forgive those who repent and believe. The real struggle, if we're going to be honest, is giving up power. We don't want to give up power. We don't want to submit to anyone or anything that's over us. Romans 1.21, Paul made this statement about all mankind. For although they, mankind, knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They did not submit to Him as God. And so any sense of power that we want to claim independent of God, it's a false sense of power. Christ is upon the throne, not you and not your heart. And that's why the message of the gospel is, it's really why it's so violent. It's not that, that, that God sent a man to die for our sins, that that man died and entered the grave and then on the third day rose. It's not that he ascended into heaven and that he's seated upon the throne. These are not the outrageous claims of why we reject God. We reject God because that means he has authority and power over us and therefore we hate him for it. We cannot and do not want to submit to anyone or anything just like the Sanhedrin because that means that we must relinquish our power. So the first thing we see In the Sanhedrin's question, by what power or by what man or by what name did you do this? The universal power struggles revealed between God and man, between you and God. And so the question for this morning, I think for us is, does Peter have an answer for us? He had an answer for the Sanhedrin. Does it apply to us that we might actually be set free from this power struggle and live a life of loving obedience to the one who's in power rather than constantly beating our head against the wall. Point number two, the power stone. If you remember during Jesus' earthly ministry, he told the apostles, the disciples, not to worry when they came upon situations like this. He literally said, Luke chapter 12, when they bring, when they bring you before them, the authorities, do not be anxious. He said that the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, I imagine that John and Peter, the night before in jail, are going, what are we going to say? What's our defense? And then by God's grace, they remember what Jesus said and said, relax, go to sleep, get a good night's sleep. The Holy Spirit will speak on your behalf. Look at verse 8. Jesus was faithful and the promise came true. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed, 
done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Not the name they wanted to hear. Weeks prior, they had put this man to death, and now he's back before them, and they're declaring that this man is well because Jesus Christ, whom you killed, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead and made this man well. And so Peter, if you notice, rather than defending himself, he preaches another sermon. <laughs> right? That's what he's going to do. He's a preacher. So he doesn't defend himself. He preaches another sermon. They want to know by what name and what authority you're exercising this power. And Peter says to them plainly, let it be known to all that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man stands before you well. Make no mistake, he said. It's not me and it's not John. It's Jesus Christ. And he points to this man. I mean, he's there in a courtroom. He's exhibit A, right? He's the only exhibit there. And he's perfectly healed. And they know they cannot deny this fact. Even their power-starved, power-hungry hearts cannot deny that a miracle had taken place. And so Peter takes the opportunity to say, I'll answer your question. And he does. And he's also going to convict them of their sin. Why? Peter wants them saved. He wants the 71 sitting on that tribunal to come to a saving grace too. So he answers their question and he brings conviction. Look at the latter part of verse 10 again. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you, oh, by the way, whom you crucified, by the way, and oh, by the way, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And so now the judges are on trial. Now the judges are on trial. Not for a good deed, not for healing a man, but for the most evil deed ever exercised in human history, for the murdering of a sinless man, God's son, their Messiah, their Messiah. It was these exact men, Annas, Caiaphas, and the others, who literally handed Jesus over to Pilate, as we saw last week, to be crucified. These men, directly responsible for the execution of our Lord. They murdered him through Roman crucifixion, and then God did what? God raised him from the dead and exalted him into the heavens. God said he will not stay dead. And so Peter's saying, this man is well because Jesus Christ, whom you killed, is seated upon the throne, and he made him well. He made him well. The apostles had the authority to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and to proclaim the gospel of repentance and faith in the name of Christ because Christ is seated upon the throne. And so Peter and John are establishing a power structure here. He's not denying the Sanhedrin's power, but he said there is a person, a name that is above all names. There is a Lord of Lord and a King of Kings. It is Christ. He's on the throne. And that means he's above you. He's above you, Sanhedrin. And in order to validate this, of course, what's Peter going to do? He's going to draw from their scriptures. So he goes to a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, in order to establish that Jesus Christ, whom they crucified, God did in fact raise from the dead and is now seated upon the throne. In verse 11, he's quoting, I'm going to read to you verses 22 and 23 from Psalm 18, but this is the quote. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And so Peter draws upon a building and the analogy of a building and the, the building up of a structure in order to do two things. One, he wants to establish their guilt. And number two, he wants to establish Jesus as the Messiah. 
So in this building analogy, the Sanhedrin, they're the builders. You don't want to be the builders in this analogy because the builders rejected the stone. How did they reject him? They had him crucified. But God would not leave it like that. God came along and said, you rejected the stone. I'm going to raise him from the dead, seat him upon the throne. So he not only is the stone, he is the cornerstone. In architecture, that means he was the most important piece in the building, in the structure. The cornerstone was the stone that was put down first, and all the other stones would be built up upon that. The cornerstone was necessary for the building to survive and be sustained. And of course, Christ is the cornerstone of the church, and we are the stones being built up upon it. God's people built upon the rock of Jesus Christ. They rejected him. God raised him up. What a painful, what a painful testimony to this council. They found that they were now in opposition against God. If what Peter said is true, and it's really hard to argue against him because, remember, Exhibit A is there. The man was healed. And if what Peter is saying is true, then this stinging rebuke should have brought the full weight of God's word upon them that the man they killed is, in fact, reigning from heaven. What I find so striking about this is the silence of the Sanhedrin. There's not, Luke does not record a single word. These are lawyers, these are politicians, these are philosophers, these are men who love to talk and love to talk publicly and they do not offer one word in their defense. Not one word to try to justify the killing of an innocent man whom they knew to be innocent and, and not one word to prove that his resurrection was a sham. I mean, certainly they would have, right? I mean, we're at a critical mass now, 5,000 plus people following this movement, this Jesus movement, all they had to do was produce a body. Produce a body. Peter goes away, John goes away, the apostles go away, the church goes away. Why didn't they produce the body? There was no body. Right? The body was raised from the dead and the body was ascended into heaven. That body was alive and well and reigning with God. And so they were silent because they knew. They were without excuse. They knew they participated in the murder of man who now reigned with God. But just as Peter did in the sermon the day before, he does hear with these men, I love the apostle's heart. He wants them saved. Look at verse 12. He says to them, after convicting them, he says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Notice he says we, that we the apostles, we the church, and we you, the Sanhedrin. He includes them. It's an invitation to repent and believe. And the day before at Solomon's colonnade, he said this to the guilty, remember? Repent and turn back to God so that your sins, putting God's Son to death, that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's saying repent and be refreshed. Repent and be saved by God. In other words, Peter is saying, listen, the same power that healed this lame beggar that you know and will not deny is the same power that can save your soul. There's a, a word play that Luke does here that we kind of lose in the English. In verse 9, it says, The healing of the beggar, this man has been healed. The word in the Greek is sozo. He's been healed. He uses it again in verse 12. Same word for those who can be saved, sozo, in Jesus' name. And so he's saying, same God, same message, same power that healed this man's physical infirmity can heal your spiritual infirmity. In other words, he is giving them great hope 
these power-crazed, self-ruling, murderous Sanhedrin have the hope of being saved too. It's glorious news. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the dialogue comes full circle now. The Sanhedrin wanted to know the name. Where do you get the power? Whose name are you acting? And Peter declares, universally there is no other name by which any man can be saved. So the Jewish rulers, trying to protect their power, their money, their way of life, are now, they've come up against God. And they they can either submit to God and see that Christ truly is Lord of Lord and King of Kings and come under Him and enjoy Him and truly be saved, or they can fight against Him unto death. If the rulers persisted in rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah, if they continued to be the foolish builders that they were being, they had already put the cornerstone to death, then the blood guilt would remain upon their hands. There would be no hope of salvation by grace through faith. Why? Because there was no higher authority to appeal to. If they weren't going to submit to Christ, who would they then go to? They weren't going to go to the Father because the Father sent Christ. No higher authority. In other words, the the truth had been stated plainly by Peter. And now, now listen, the judges truly would have to judge whether they were going to submit to Christ and live or not and die. Whether they were going to submit and live or die. Where they can continue in their sins against the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Or would they repent and turn back and be forgiven of their sins and receive the refreshing that comes through the Holy Spirit coming to a saving grace in Christ? My beloved, the question asked by the Sanhedrin to Peter and John is the same question that we must ask ourselves. By what power or by what name can a person be saved? By what power and by what name can you be saved? Because your heart is at war with God. It has been for as long as you can remember. So how is this battle overcome? Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the answer remains the same. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. There is no name under heaven, no other name under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. My beloved, so upon whose name and whose power are you building your life? Whose name and whose power are you building your life? Making a profession of faith, getting baptized, joining a church and reading your Bible does not mean you're building your life on the rock of Christ. It may look like it is, but they do not translate equally. The 71 members of the Sanhedrin prove our point well. These were the religious elite. These were the power brokers of their time, all awaiting the Messiah, and they all rejected the Messiah and put him to death. And if anybody in the Jewish culture said, who's going to be saved, they would have pointed to the Sanhedrin, and they got it wrong. They got it wrong. I would argue that this past year and all the events that have transpired have revealed that many who profess to be Christians have built their lives on something other than Jesus Christ. How else can we explain the number of churches that have closed their doors in the past year? How else can we explain the forecasted 20% of U.S. churches closing for good by the end of 2021? 20%, that's one in five churches in this country. How do we explain that? 
other than those who came into the pandemic with their faith in Christ and something or someone else and then being shaken right out. Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, most of you know this, his teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, he made this crystal clear. He used an analogy that we get even today, so it doesn't have a cultural context that makes it difficult to understand. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Everyone who hears my words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on what? On the rock, on the stone, on the cornerstone. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And then he says in verse 26, Everyone who hears my words and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and what? And great was the fall of it. Great was the fall. Beloved, listen, if you've built your life on anything else, anyone else other than Jesus Christ alone, then you built your house on sand. Now, most people in church on Sunday will say, I built my life on Christ, maybe, or maybe not. Maybe you built your life on Christ and your marriage, or Jesus and your career, or your family, or your finances. Maybe you said, it's Jesus in my education, or your health. Whatever identity you've attached to Jesus Christ as your life is building your life on sand. Whatever that identity is, it's not building upon the rock, the cornerstone. And therefore, the fall is inevitable for you. If Christ is not your life, if you've not built your life on Christ. Jesus made this very clear. Matthew chapter 21, verse 44. He said, anyone who falls on this stone, speaking of himself, will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will what? Will be crushed. You you can't go against Jesus. You can't add to Jesus. You can't say Jesus and anything or Jesus and anyone. I'm going to build my life on that because that's building your life on the sand. And when the rain falls and the floods come and the wind blows, which it will on the great day of the Lord, then a great fall will take place. So first we've seen, I hope, the universal struggle in the heart of every man being at war with God. Second, I hope we've seen that this struggle will manifest itself in us trying to be saved by Jesus and someone or something else and not building our life on Christ alone. And that's a power struggle too, right? We want Jesus and something else because that gives us power over the something else, whatever that may be. But what if you have truly been building your life on Christ? Not perfectly, of course, but you've really been building your life on Christ. What if you've made a profession of faith, you have trusted in the Lord, how can you know that you're not one of the Sanhedrin. They thought they were on the right track. I mean, how can you really know? Is there any means by which we can walk in this life and say, yes, I'm building my life on Christ. I gave my life to Christ. I'm building my life on Christ. And by his grace and power, I will die in Christ. How can you know? Do you want to know? I want to know, and I think the passage actually tells us how we can know we're not fooling ourselves. Last point, power displayed. Our Sanhedrin, they're in a little pickle, aren't they? 
They're in a pickle. It's a good pickle. I love this tension. I want them to be in a pickle. They're trying to deny truth, and they're trying to go against God. They want to punish Peter and John, so those two will stop proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. They want them to stop. But they have two serious problems on their hands. One, they have a supernatural healing they cannot themselves deny. Look at verse 14. Seeing the man who has healed, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, Peter and John, they had nothing to say in opposition. Now jump down to verse 16. They said amongst themselves, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So we can't deny truth. We know it. The people know it. But they also had a public relation problem on their hand. Remember, their primary concern is status quo. Don't upset Rome. We like our money. We like our power. Don't get anybody bent out of shape. And yet, 5,000 or more had already heard and already believed the apostolic message. So what are they going to do? They can't punish him. So look at verse 21. This is, this is the grand decision from the great Sanhedrin, Annas, Caiaphas, and the priestly family there. When they had further threatened them, stop, no, really stop, no, really, it's like the child at the park, you know, where the parent says, let's go, it's time to go. No, it's really time to go. Obviously, it's not time to go. They further threatened them, the apostles, and then they let him go. They let him go, finding no way to punish them because the people, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. The Sanhedrin, they're fighting against truth. They knew it. They were fighting against truth but did not want to relinquish their power. They were fighting against the truth of a critical mass of Jesus' followers rising up in light of the work of God the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and yet they would not accept it because in so doing, they would have to forsake their positions of power and authority. In other words, they were bound. They were bound by their pocketbooks. They were bound by their lust for power. They couldn't get Peter and John to recant. They couldn't get him to stop. Both men displayed beautifully for us that they, in fact, were building their lives on the cornerstone of Christ. They refused, even in the midst of this tribunal, whom they knew was responsible for putting their Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, to death. They stood here amongst these men, testifying as witnesses to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in this passage, Luke reveals three characteristics of Peter and John that I would like us to contemplate before we close. And I want, I want you to ask yourself, is this how I'm living my faith in Christ? Do these characteristics belong to me that I too might know that I am building my life on the rock? That I can look at how I am living and know that my life is being built upon the rock instead of the sand. The first characteristic we see in verse 13, and that's boldness. Boldness. Look at verse 13. Now when they, the Sanhedrin, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, that's humble, uh, they, the Sanhedrin, were astonished. They were astonished. Boldness can be translated confidence. In other words, they presented themselves as authentic witnesses to the truth and therefore were to be taken seriously. 
Now, the Jewish leaders, again, this is just being replicated. You remember this. They had the same dialogue with Jesus at the Feast of Booths. John 7, 15, the Jews marveled at Jesus' teaching, saying, how is it that this man has this learning when he has never studied? Well, he had never studied with them, but he had certainly studied. Peter and John were not graduates of any of the Jewish schools of thought. They weren't a Sadducee. They weren't the Pharisees. They weren't the Essenes. They had not studied under a notable A-list rabbi. They were uneducated common men. That's a true statement, depending upon how you define uneducated. And yet they were confident and bold in the proclamation of the truth, causing the rulers and the elders and the scribes, look at verse 10, to be what? To be astonished. They were dumbfounded, thinking, where do these guys come from? How do they get this kind of knowledge? How can they speak about eternal truths like this? My beloved, this is a characteristic of someone who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit and familiar with the Word of God. This is a characteristic of every single believer indwelt by the Holy Spirit and familiar with the Word of God. You remember, you remember how brave Peter was before the resurrection on the night that our Lord was betrayed. Peter three times denied knowing Jesus to a servant girl. He was a coward. And yet after the resurrection and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he stands before the most powerful tribunal amongst his people, knowing full well that his end may be death like his Lord's. And he boldly testifies to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So did John. They weren't seminary trained. They didn't have their PhDs. They were followers of Jesus, proclaiming simply the gospel of grace. Verse 10, they declared the power of God to save. Verse 11, they declared those people's need to be saved. And verse 12, the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ. The power of God to save, the need to be saved, and being saved in Jesus. I would argue that most, if not all of you, know that message. You know that same message because you have experienced it personally. It's a simple message that can be boldly and confidently declared from your own lips. So if you know this, and you are not willing to be bold in the proclamation of Jesus, then it might be that you've attached something to Jesus' name. That maybe your identity is not solely as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's your willingness or lack of willingness to, to possibly be disliked, knowing full well that when you proclaim the gospel, that can be relationally dangerous. People might not look at you the same. They might not like you. They might actually say things to you that are hurtful. Whatever it is, though, that you've attached to the name of Jesus that prevents you from being the bold, confident witness that Christ has made you to be, you need to confess it today. You need to confess today that we might be the confident witnesses that God has equipped us to be. So the first characteristic that we see of someone who's truly following Christ is boldness. Boldness. And that, you say, well, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm a timid person. I'm a quiet person. I'm a shy person. Fooey. The Holy Spirit, in his power, will make you bold. He'll make you bold. Second characteristic displayed here, which I, I just love, that they were recognizable as followers of Jesus. Look at the latter part of verse 13. They, the Sanhedrin, recognized that they had been with Jesus. So how did they know? Well, some of them might actually, I mean, Jesus that last year, he was in Jerusalem a lot. Say, we know these guys. We, we remember them being with Jesus, maybe. They were Galileans. That would have given them away. But I think Luke is saying something to us quite different here. Disciples in the first century 
were recognized by living the life of their masters. Right? So they were identified as being part of a particular group because they were living just as their masters had lived. And the Sanhedrin had plenty of exposure to Jesus in that last year. They knew how Jesus lived. They knew what he taught. They knew how he healed and how he loved. And so the disciples here are living out that life. They are teaching the gospel of grace. They are serving and ministering to those in need. They're they're healing people who haven't walked for 40 years. And so they are recognized as being men who had been with Jesus in the way they were living their lives. My beloved, your ability to be recognized as a follower of Jesus Christ will be contingent, listen closely, will be contingent upon the amount of time you spend with Jesus. Your ability to be recognizable as a disciple of Jesus Christ will be contingent upon the amount of time you spend with Jesus. Just like these men, for three and a half years, day after day, they lived with him, they ministered with him, they ate with him, they performed miracles in his name with him. And so they exuded Jesus. Not a single supernatural experience that we like to talk about today. And I hate to break the news to you, not an hour and a half gathering on Sunday morning. That will not make you recognizable as a follower of Jesus. They were recognized because they spent time with him. It's the same for us. The time that you spend daily in his word will shape you to be recognized as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The time you spend faithfully praying to God praying through his word, meditating through his word. The time that you spend amongst believers, worshiping God like this, engaging in ministry, will make you recognizable. Your words will be like Christ. Your motives will be like Christ. You will serve like Christ. You will. You'll come along people who are hurting and you'll lift them up. You'll come along those who are in sin and you will lovingly hold them accountable. You will be someone who builds up the very body of Christ. But the converse is equally true. If you are not in the word and you're not in prayer and you're not amongst God's people and this is your sole contact, your sole religious point once a week, then you will not look like Jesus. It will not be sufficient. Your flesh, not your spirit, the spirit that reigns in you, will be noticeable to the world. Now that's not what we want the world to see. We want to see the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We want people to be astonished too by how we live our lives. So two characteristics, boldness in the faith, being recognized as a follower, are you, are you, and I'll give you one more in close, the inability to remain silent. This is the right time to not be able to keep your mouth closed. The Sanhedrin solution to Peter and John was a stern warning. Latter part of verse 18, charging them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Uh, What else could they do? The beggar was well. The, the proliferation of the church was exploding exponentially. Peter and John are not bound by money. They're not bound by politics and power. Their conscience is bound by God. They had been completely forgiven of their sins. They had received the refreshing that comes from the Holy Spirit, and therefore they could speak freely the truth that they knew. And that's what we want, my beloved. Look at verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you 
rather than to God, you must judge. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They said, listen, you're the judges, you adjudicate. You, you make that decision. What we know is that we cannot speak, we cannot not speak about what we have seen and what we have heard. They could not be silenced. I mean, how could they, my beloved? For three and a half years, they walk with Jesus. They see miracle after miracle after miracle that utterly change their lives. For three and a half years, they heard this man teach from heaven. These were divine teachings from the divine God-man. For three and a half years, they saw the love of God incarnate in a man and how that was exercised in his care and concern for broken humanity. They witnessed his crucifixion. They witnessed his burial. They witnessed his, his resurrection and for 40 days communed with him in resurrected form. And then they remember they stood there and they saw him ascend into heaven in the glory cloud knowing that he now is seated upon the throne. And then they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And now what are they doing? They're proclaiming the gospel. They're making disciples. And oh, by the way, they're healing people who can't walk. These are all life-changing events. And they were all real. All real, all too important, too extraordinary, and too life-changing for them to remain silent. How could they remain silent? They could not, even in the fear of death. My beloved, if you have experienced, and I pray you have, and if not, today is the day to repent and believe. If you've experienced the life-altering miracle of being forgiven of your sins, if you've experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and now you know yourself to be a son or daughter of God, no longer at war, no longer an enemy of the Lord, but by grace through faith in Jesus, utterly and completely healed, then you can't be silent. There's no way you can be silent. If that has happened to you, what you've seen and what you've heard, you too, like Peter, like John, you must speak. You must speak. You can no longer be silent. At one point in time, like the Sanhedrin, you sat in the judgment seat against God. You adjudicated God. You rejected Him at some point in time. But God, by the power of the resurrected Lord through His death and resurrection, He plucked you, if you know Christ, He plucked you out of the scoffer's seat and He healed you completely, forgiving you of all your sins, bringing you into the community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and now the church loving you infinitely that you might love him in return and giving you joy, real joy. That's all real. That's all real if you know Christ. It's too important, too extraordinary, and too life-changing for you to be silent. For you to be silent. My beloved, when a child is born, do parents remain silent? No. They tell everybody they can tell. When a cancer patient is cured, does he not share his story with others who will listen? Jesus' followers must tell of the glories of God in saving sinners. You are a walking miracle, a walking testimony to the power of Jesus Christ to save sinners. Being bold in your faith, recognizable as a follower of Jesus Christ and eager to tell the world what you have seen, heard, and experienced these are all means, my beloved, of validating that your war is no longer, your heart is no longer at war with God. 
These are means of knowing that you are building your life not on the sand, but upon the rock, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. These are means of testing. Paul said, test yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. And they are all good tests. They are ways that you can live so that you can sing as we had a chance to sing and mean it from the heart. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then on Christ the solid rock I stand. All the ground is what? Sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would forgive us this morning not for rejecting truth, but for refusing to relinquish power. It is not only foolish, Father, to go against your will because you are God. It is also detrimental to our own lives, to our families, to this church and this community. Lord, what you have commanded us to and what you've equipped us to be is best for us. And so I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us this morning, that we would not be like the Sanhedrin, staring truth in the face and yet not submitting because we want to retain the power to live as we see fit. Forgive us, Father, for reading your word or coming to you in prayer and knowing full well we will not submit on certain areas. I ask, Lord, for a complete and total submission to Christ that we might live. I ask, Lord, that you would make us humble that you would give us hearts that see clearly that we are not God and that you are and that you are gracious and loving and that you sent Christ that we might not only live eternally but live in him now. I pray, Lord, that you would make us as a church bold in our faith, recognizable as disciples of our Lord and eager to tell the, the world what we have seen and heard because what we have seen and heard is amazing. I ask, Lord, that you would open our mouths that we would bring this gospel testimony to our friends and family and our neighbors that they too might repent and believe and put their faith in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would do that, Lord, for your glory in his name. Amen.